she didn't understand what the word meant. She knew that when it was discussed, there was a sense of dread, a sense of foreboding. She knew that it had to be something terrible, something monstrous, something that that she had never experienced. She thought, possibly, when she was giving birth to her children, when the pain was racking her body, pain the likes of which she could not have imagined possible, she thought maybe that was it. But after having her second child and going through that pain twice, she realized that was not. That was not it. That was not this terrible thing that was looming in her future. She didn't understand the word until today. Today, the reality of this dreaded entity came into focus in her life like she couldn't have imagined. You see, today the pain that she was feeling was a different kind of pain. It wasn't physical. She pulled the lifeless body of her son to her. Her son who had been brutally murdered by his brother. As she stared into those dead, vacant eyes, she realized she would never talk to Abel again. She realized she would never hug Abel again. She realized that Abel was gone to a place that she did not know. She realized that this was death. She'd never experienced death, not in human form anyway. She had heard about it from God. He had threatened death when she was tempted by that serpent to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and give it to her husband Adam who was there with her. When she was punished and cast from the garden, God tossed around the word death and explained that death would enter the world. But it wasn't anything instantaneous. It wasn't something that happened to her and Adam immediately. And even in all of the discussion of this dreaded word, she never fully appreciated what death meant. But the separation and emotional pain that was ripping her soul to shreds came with full force into her life and she realized that this, this was death. And she cast her mind back to those words that God had spoken to her and to Adam and to the serpent in the garden before they had been cast out. 
when they had been caught red-handed eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She recalled the words that God had said to the serpent. She recalled how God had said, I will put enmity between you, talking about the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. She realized what Satan had done to her and her family. She realized that she and Adam were going to face the same dreaded death that Abel had faced. In fact, she realized that every single one of her descendants, and she was the mother of all living, they were all going to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. She knew that Satan was the reason this was happening, and she knew that there had to be someone who could come and defeat this dreaded enemy of death. And in God's words to the serpent, there was a tiny ray of hope. This passage, Genesis 3.15, is called the Proto-Evangelum. Because it is the first form of the gospel. The ray of hope in that woman was going to have a child and somewhere, somehow that child was going to defeat Satan. And I'm fully convinced that Eve thought that that child was going to be her child. You see, God hadn't given any time frame. God hadn't said this was going to happen in 200 years or 2,000 years. God just said, the seed of woman. And I believe Eve, looking around, realizing that she was the woman at the time, thought that she was going to give birth to this Messiah, this one who would come and destroy Satan and death. But as you look at the life of Eve, you realize the Messiah didn't come from Eve. And the Bible says that she and Adam had many more sons and daughters. And I am convinced that she explained to those daughters when they would lose their children that somewhere, somehow, God was going to send a seed of woman. When you read about Noah, several generations after Adam and Eve, you read that Noah's father and family named him because they said, He will give us rest from our labors, looking like they thought Noah might be the one. But Noah wasn't the one. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives were saved from that horrible worldwide catastrophe. They were the only human people saved, eight of them. But Noah wasn't the Messiah. After Noah, God gave humans the command to go out into the world and to be fruitful and multiply and to spread across the globe. But the humans after Noah decided that that's not what they wanted to do. They decided that they were going to stop there in the valley of Shinar. They were going to build a huge tower up to the heights of heaven. They were going to make a name for themselves so that they would not be spread out all over the world. And God realized that they were working together. And such 
powerful unity was taking place that he realized nothing that they wanted to do was going to be restrained from their hand unless he stepped in and did something. And he did, in Genesis chapter 11, step in and confuse the languages of all of the people so that they were forced to spread out like he had commanded them to. From Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11, you see approximately 2,000 years of human history in 11 chapters. If I were to ask you how many books are in the Bible, you would probably quickly tell me there are 66 books in the Bible. And yet with Genesis, the first 11 chapters deal with 2,000 years of human and earth history, and yet the rest of the 65 and a half books start with Abraham and to Revelation, Genesis from Revelation... The rest of the 65 and a half books only deal with another 2,000 years. Well, why in the world would God spend 11 chapters dealing with the first 2,000 years and then 66 and a half, 65 and a half more books dealing with the next 2,000? There's a simple answer for that. The singular point of the Scriptures is to show you and to show humanity for all time who the Messiah is. Now, there are other things in the Scriptures that show you how to live, show you about telling the truth, about being honest and people of integrity, show you about not cheating and how to do various good moral things. But that's not the ultimate point of the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. The ultimate point is to show humanity the Messiah. Do you know there are lots of people from... Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11 that were faithful to God. In fact, entire books could have been written about the faithful who followed God. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, the Bible says, was so faithful that he walked with God and the Bible says he was not because God took him. Melchizedek, the Bible says, was the priest of the most High God, the King of Salem, also translated the King of Peace. How come you don't have several books written on Enoch or on Seth or on Melchizedek? They're all very, very faithful people. Why don't you have several pages or chapters written on them? There's a simple reason. They didn't fit into the Messianic picture. Will they be in heaven? Were they faithful to God? Certainly they were. But they're not important to you necessarily because they don't have anything to do with the Messiah. You see, the Messiah was going to be the seed of woman, but the Messiah, in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man named Abram, who He later changes His name to Abraham, the man that you know as the father of the faithful, the patriarch who was the first father of the Jewish nation. God comes to Abraham and says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you realize before Abraham, there were some estimated 4 billion people? If from the time of Eve, people had been looking for the Messiah, 
they realized that the Messiah was going to be a male and the Messiah was going to be someone who was born of the seed of woman. He was not going to be an angelic being. He was not going to be formed out of the ground like Adam. He was going to be the child of a woman. And for 2,000 years, some 4 billion people, 2 billion of those male, it could have been any one of those 2 billion. Approximately 2 billion. But in Genesis chapter 12, God focuses the messianic microscope. And He brings to a clearer picture where the Messiah is going to come from. And that Messiah is going to come from the seed of Abraham. I have not figured out a way yet to impress upon audiences the importance of what God did in Genesis chapter 12. Do you realize God could have picked anybody? God could have picked Melchizedek's line. God could have picked Enoch's line. God could have picked anybody during the time of Abraham, but He didn't. Have you ever asked yourself why 66 books of the Bible are filled with basically a history of the Jewish nation? What's that got to do with anything related to you? One thing. That's it. God picked Abraham to be the progenitor of the Messiah. But Abraham had several sons. You'll realize that Abraham had Ishmael. Abraham had Isaac. Genesis chapter 25 said that Abraham was married to a woman named Keturah. And Keturah had at least five sons that she bore to Abraham. Do you know how many chapters you read about Keturah's sons? Few. In fact, you don't read a chapter one. You read a few verses about Keturah's sons. You know how many chapters you read about Ishmael? Very few. But the rest of the Bible is focused on Isaac's descendants. Why? There again... A very simple reason. Read with me Genesis seventeen twenty one. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God picked Isaac. He picked him over Ishmael. He picked him over the sons of Keturah. Do you realize that God was focusing the messianic picture so that any person that was not the seed of Abraham could not be the Messiah. Any person that was not the seed of Isaac could not be the Messiah. But then, you may recall that Isaac fathered sons. In fact, Isaac fathered two sons, Jacob and Esau. If you just from a worldly standpoint were looking in on the life of Isaac, and you ask yourself, which of these two sons would have been the father of the Messiah? You would probably have guessed that it would be Esau. Esau was the firstborn. Generally speaking, the firstborn was given rights and privileges over and above that of the secondborn. If you were just from a worldly standpoint, looking at which of these two would have been the patriarch of the Messiah, you would have gone from Esau, but you would have gone for Esau, but that wasn't who God had chosen, was it? In fact, the Bible explains that Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, was chosen as the father of the Messiah. But then Jacob had 12 
sons, the twelve tribes or sons of Israel. How in the world would you know which of those twelve sons would be the patriarch of the Messiah? Just a dice roll? Would you take a lucky guess? Now remember, the central point of the Bible is to show you who the Messiah is. In Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, we again have a focusing of the messianic picture. God tells us, not only is He just going to pick Abraham, not only is He going to pick Isaac, not only is He going to pick Jacob, but he, but He's going to take out one of Jacob's sons, Judah. And in Genesis 49 verse 10 you read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. God had chosen Judah out of the twelve sons of Israel. But as the Bible progresses, not only is the Messiah going to be the seed of Judah, but the Messiah is going to be the seed of David. I want you to read with me Psalm 89, 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. You see, God picked David out of the tribe of Judah and the Messiah was going to be the son of David. But he wasn't just going to be the son of David. The Bible explains that the Messiah was going to reign on the throne of David. Read with me Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. If you were a Jew and you looked back over your history, the glory days of Judaism were during the reign of David. You'll recall that the Jews clamored for a king like the nations around them. And God granted their wish and set as the first king King Saul, the Bible describes Saul as very physically appealing. He was strong and he was tall. The Bible says he was a head and shoulder above all of the other Israelites. He looked like a king, but he was not obedient to God's commands. In fact, because of his disobedience, God sent prophets to explain that he was going to rip the kingdom away from Saul and he was going to give it to someone who had a heart like God's. And then you see that man, that young man who was the keeper of his father's sheep, the young man who the Bible describes as ruddy and good-looking, the young man who killed a 
bear and killed a lion because they had stolen lambs from his flock. The young man who, in one of the most monumental acts of courage that the world has ever seen, step onto the battlefield with a nine and a half foot tall giant. That giant was armed so heavily that he had a person who walked in front of him to carry his shield. And David ran at him with five smooth stones and a single sling and explained to that giant in the middle of his attack, that that giant was going to die at his hand because God was with him. And David routed an entire Philistine army with a single stone by the power of God. David, they sang songs about him. The Israelite women said, Saul has killed his thousands. But David, David has killed his tens. Of thousands. David who killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. David who had an army of mighty men that were so distinguished. Their deeds were recorded for all time. David who put garrisons in all of the surrounding nations so that they came and offered tribute to him. David who wrote well over half of the Psalms that were recorded and kept for the entire nation of Israel for a thousand years after his life. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, who was given the blueprints of the temple by God, if you were a Jew, David was the king. And the Messiah was going to reign on the throne of David. And what that brought to your mind was a reign and a government of victory. A government where no one could withstand your force. A government where the Messiah sat on the throne of David and conquered all who were in his path. But there was a problem with the Messianic picture. You see, the Messiah was going to reign on the throne of David. But the Messiah was going to suffer. Isaiah, speaking of the suffering servant, said, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You shall grow up before Him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see Him, there's no beauty that we should desire Him. David, ruddy and good-looking, the suffering servant, no form or comeliness, nothing that would make you physically attracted to Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our sins was upon Him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. 
He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He suffered and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no sin and there was no guile found in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isaiah 52, the last few verses explain that the Messiah was going to be beaten and punished so severely that His appearance, the Scripture says His visage, was going to be marred beyond that of any man so that you wouldn't even recognize Him when the world got through with Him. Now how was somebody like that going to sit on the throne of David and rule the David kingdom? Well, they thought it was impossible, the Jewish nation did. And so they decided to concoct two messiahs. You see, they decided that they would have a Messiah ben David. Ben David meaning son of David and that Messiah. Oh, he'd reign on the throne. But then they also said that there would have to be another Messiah and they called him Messiah ben Joseph. Because he would be punished and tortured like the patriarch Joseph was. Because in their minds, they could not reconcile the idea of a suffering servant reigning on the throne of David. And then, then we come to Jesus. Jesus, who during his lifetime was so misunderstood, people didn't even know what to call him. In Matthew chapter 16, when he goes into Caesarea Philippi, he asks his apostles, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They say, Well, some people say you're John the Baptizer, some people say you're Elijah. Or one of the prophets. They didn't have a clue who Jesus was. And Jesus said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, in one of the most memorable verses in all of the Bible, said, You are the Christ. In Greek, Hakristos. What was Peter saying? You're the Messiah. You're the man that humanity has been looking for from the time of Eve. From the time death was understood, you are Him. But you know, even the apostles didn't understand. In Acts chapter 1, you read that Christ had come back and the apostles said to Jesus, is it time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Is it time for you to sit on the throne of David and have a worldly government where everybody bows down to you? Even the apostles didn't understand. But Jesus did everything He could 
to show to that first century Jewish audience and to show to humanity for all time that He was the Messiah. He was the seed of woman who had come into the world to bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. He was the man who was going to crush the head of that wicked serpent of old. He was the hope of all nations. He came and He was born of a virgin. Exactly like Isaiah had predicted in Isaiah 7.14. He came and He was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Exactly like Micah had predicted in Micah chapter 5. He came and did miracles. He came and fulfilled over 300 messianic specific prophecies that are in the Old Testament. He came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey that had been predicted by Zechariah. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver that had been predicted by Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 11. Those 30 pieces of silver were taken and used to buy the potter's field, which was predicted by Zechariah. He did every single thing that any person could possibly do to show the world that He was the Christ. Do you think those genealogies in Matthew and Luke are just there to read and pass over? No. Why is the lineage of Jesus so thoroughly documented? Well, because in order for Jesus to be the Messiah, He had to be the son of Abraham. He had to be the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of Judah, the son of David, and on down. If He wasn't, there's no way He could have been the Messiah. So at length, the Bible writers documented His lineage. Jesus was the Messiah. And with one of His dying breaths... He tried to bring that messianic picture into crystal clear focus for all the world to know. You'll recall several statements that Jesus made while being crucified or on His way to the cross. Maybe you'll recall when He was first crucified and He looked out at that howling, bloodthirsty mob. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Maybe you recall the humanity of Christ as it is evident in His cry, I thirst. Maybe you recall His love as He looked out at His mother and He said, Woman, behold thy son. And he looked over to the apostle whom he loved, John, and he said, Son, behold thy mother, making sure that his mother was cared for in his absence. Maybe you'll recall his concern for those of his followers who would be left as the women followed him on the way to the cross and they mourned for him. And he turned to them and said, Don't mourn for me, but mourn for yourselves. If they will do these things in the greenwood, what will they do in the dry? Meaning, of course, that if they'll do this to the Son of God, what will they do to His followers? 
Maybe you'll recall after the sun was darkened for three hours, Christ screamed, piercing the air. In Greek, Tetelestai. It is finished. But maybe you'll recall one of the most puzzling, enigmatic statements that Christ made on the cross. When he, when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which Matthew translated for us, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus make that statement? I think there are two reasons that Jesus made that statement. Number one, I think Jesus wanted us to realize the horrendous nature of sin. And that Jesus hanging on that cross, the Bible says, became sin for us. And the Bible says that God is of such a holy and pure nature that He cannot put His eyes, He cannot turn His face to sin. And I believe that is one of the most spiritually heart-rending statements ever made by Jesus when there was a very real separation between Him and the Father. But I don't believe that's the main point of that particular passage. In fact, if you could, I would like for you to think about being a first century Jew. Think about having watched this man perform miracles, raise the dead, cast out demons, make it so that blind people could see and deaf people could hear, so that mute people could talk. And in your mind, honestly wondering, is this him? Is this the son of David like Blind Bartimaeus was screaming, Son of David, have mercy on me. Is this him? And you had withheld judgment on this man. But then you watched as the leaders manipulated the Roman government so that the Roman government hung him on the cross. And you knew your Old Testament well enough to know. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 says, Anyone who hangs on a tree is accursed of God. And you thought, this can't be the Messiah. He's accursed of God. But then Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And your mind rolled back to a psalm that was a thousand years old. Psalm 22. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you will pick them up and turn in them to Psalm 22. When you do that, the very first verse that you read in Psalm 22 reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was Jesus doing saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was attempting with one of His dying breaths to take the nation of Israel back to Psalm 22. A psalm that had been written by David a thousand years before Jesus ever stepped foot on the world. A psalm that we know was in existence, in existence at least 250 years before Jesus because we have the Hebrew Scriptures translated into Greek in the Septuagint. 
It couldn't have been penned during the time of Jesus. It existed hundreds of years before He ever lived. From what I understand about Psalm 22, it's what they call a synagogue psalm. A synagogue psalm meaning that sometimes at the beginning of synagogue worship, people would be milling around and they would be out in whatever foyer type thing that they had and they would need to be called in to worship. And from what I understand, the rabbi in charge of the worship at the synagogue of that day would stand up and start saying or singing Psalm 22. That would be the key for everyone to come in and start to worship. Psalm 22, one of the best known psalms to the Jewish nation of the first century that there was. Can you imagine standing at the cross, realizing that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22? You know the verses. You know what Psalm 22 says. In your mind, you start to go through those verses, and you get down to, in our Bibles, verse 6 of that psalm. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. And you rip your eyes from the dying Jesus and you look at the foot of the cross and you see those Jewish leaders. If He is the Christ, let Him come down from there. If God delights in Him, let Him save Him almost verbatim what you've been singing for the last 30 years of your life and what the collective Jewish community had been singing for the last thousand. And then you continue in your mind rolling through this psalm and you get down to what in our Bibles is verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. And your eyes move from those Jewish leaders to the Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross. And you watch as they are casting lots for the clothes of Jesus. Why do you think that the Bible in Acts records that many of the priests in the Jewish nation became Christians? Because the Messianic prophecies pointed straight to Jesus and with His dying words, He pulled the collective society of Israel back to a psalm that had been written a thousand years earlier and He screamed, I am the Messiah. And that's why those two disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus, after His resurrection, explained to them what was happening, Jesus said, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in the Scriptures the things concerning Him. Jesus Christ pulled 
the throne of David with one hand and grasp the picture of the suffering servant with the other and brought them together at the cross and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus Christ, ha Christos, the anointed, the Messiah.